Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Dr. Ruth Johnson is Dublin's city archaeologist charged with protecting, managing and investigating the city's oldest heritage. Paul Duffy is an archaeologist, historian and author specialising in medieval and urban archaeology. His historical research centres on the Crusades and in particular Irish involvement in the 13th century Cahar Crusade in Languedoc. Dr. Grace O'Keefe is a medieval historian based in Dublin and the new editor of Archaeology Ireland. Her doctoral research was on the hospital of St. John the Baptist in medieval Dublin. Dr. Catherine Swift lectures in the Department of History, Mary Immaculate College in Limerick, and is an expert in medieval Ireland, and her interests include Scandinavian society and settlement in Ireland, Brian Brew in the Kingdom of Thomond, and DNA studies of medieval Irish population. Well, you're all very welcome. And Ruth, I might begin with you, and I might begin with the the current excavations that are taking place uh, in Dublin. Where are they? What's going on? And what insights do we gain from them? Well, there's quite a lot going on at the moment in Dublin. Um, it's always a movable feast. Excavations come and go basically um, because of developments that are happening around the city. And we're tasked with with really ensuring that those excavations are done, that the sites are investigated before the development proceeds. And where possible, we try and preserve archaeology in situ. So I suppose the most um, uh, well-known site will be on Capel Street. Ed O'Donovan is excavating that with Courtney Deary Archaeology in advance of uh, a new hotel that's going to be built on Capel Street. And they found the the graveyard of the abbey, uh, which Abbey Street gets its name from, which is St Mary's Abbey, which is uh, was founded in the 12th century in Dublin. Um, that's really an exciting excavation. Uh, Paul has a couple of things going on as well in the city. He's a very busy man, I would say, aren't you, Paul? A few things happening, yeah. And Paul, even where we are today in our studio on Diggs Lane, the News Talk studio, we have uh, work, uh, you know, kind of all around us. Yeah, there's a lot happening in this area at the minute, right up and down George's Street, over onto Bride Street, uh, Kevin Street, big developments there. And all of these um, building sites, all these cranes that people will see walking around the city, they will all have had some level of archaeological investigation or assessment prior to the, the building works happening. And yeah, a very historic part of um, of Dublin, just outside the, the medieval city walls, but very much within medieval suburbs, as we're finding more and more as these investigations are changing the picture. Ruth, one thing which really struck me was the fact that we're not just getting an insight into medieval Dublin, we're very much getting an insight into Dublin as part of a wider world because you get an insight into all of the people who were coming to Ireland, who were leaving Ireland, from the Vikings to traders and so on. That there's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of kind of international activity as well. Yeah, well, I suppose Ireland, you know, as the land of saints and scholars in the early medieval period, had this connection, um, this European connection uh, with with monks travelling famously um, abroad um, to Germany and various places. But then in the in the Viking Age, of course, uh, Dublin was like really the centre of the Western kind of Viking colonies. And it was like on a very important sea route uh, between uh, Scandinavia. So they would have travelled from Scandinavia, from northern Scandinavia, uh, over to Scotland, Northern Isles, Hebrides, up to Iceland, down down the Irish Sea. And Dublin was a really, really important um, emporium and trading place. So it was just a, a hotbed of, of uh, you would have heard many, many different languages spoken uh, really from, from the 8th century onwards. Um, you would have heard all sorts of different languages spoken, obviously Scandinavian and Irish, um, but English, all sorts of things. Um, and then, of course, in the Anglo-Norman invasion, then it became kind of, I suppose, an international uh, colonial capital for for the English colony. So, uh, yes, yeah, it's it's, it, it's a fascinating place and it's very important internationally and nationally. 
And Catherine, we see that very much in your article as well, because, you know, I was expecting it to be just an article on on certain traders and skinners and so on. But actually, the whole world is in there because you have the Norse sagas and you have the person who behind the Arthurian legends. And, you know, there's a lot of international focus as well in the story. Yeah, well, I was just thinking as Ruth was talking, apart from the monks, there's also 11th century descriptions in the fragmentary annals of, I think it's Leinster warriors, going abroad to, to Scotland to train, um, that they're great warriors at home, and so they go to, to sort of perfect their art in, in Scottish experience, and then they come back. I think the thing about Ireland is, is that for the medieval people, it's the edge of the known world. And for that reason, it's a source of curiosity across Europe. It's also an area where you can gain a lot. So in the late 12th, 13th century, it's a, it, it, it's the Wild West. It's it, it, in every sense of the word. It's where you get the, there be gold in them there hills, um, and, and, and people who are interested in, in 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 sort of exploration and in travel and in, in making a buck, they tend to to, to 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 flock to Ireland. So you get two streams of influence. You get the the the, the curious poetic types who are who are dreamers about the edge of the world, but you also get the hard jaws the military who can see opportunities for gaining land, marrying rich women, becoming settling down and becoming farmers. There was a, a professor of old Irish in Maynooth in my day who used to talk about young warriors who would settle down and become geezers. He was from Leicester. Uh, so <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of men passed through, uh, through uh, Dublin to become geezers in the wider part of Ireland. Brilliant. Grace, congratulations on your new role as editor of Archaeology Ireland. And maybe a question about that. Why do we have such an interest in archaeology in this country that we seem to really enjoy hearing about these excavations and we enjoy, you know, excavating our history, delving into the past and finding out what it says about us? Because I think Irish people in general are incredibly interested in trying to understand who we are and what we are. If you walk into any bookshop... In Ireland, the history section is one of the biggest sections. It's one of the biggest, you know, the the busiest, uh, the busiest sections. Um, and I think we're constantly trying to delve into kind of who we are and what we are. And also the fact that we actually have such a rich, like we, you know, think of ourselves as this small island, but we have such a rich history um, and archaeology. I mean, Paul, Paul and Ruth can uh, agree or disagree with me on this, but I think archaeology took a while in Ireland. It took a while for us to appreciate archaeology in Ireland, maybe particularly in an urban sense. Um, And I think now that people realise actually how much archaeology can tell us um, and how even one tiny little object can reveal you know, the length of uh, and breadth of where it travelled from. I was thinking what Ruth and and, um, Catherine were saying there about the international aspect of Dublin. And if you think anywhere that's on a Viking trading route, you think of, you know, all the, the passage, the travel, the, the merchants, people coming and going in Dublin. Um, if you think of, say, on Wine Tavern Street in Dublin, the, the kind of tokens that would have been found. Um, you know, if we delve into the whole Wood Key excavation, the type of objects that were found in there. And actually in the next Archaeology Ireland um, coming out in September, um, we have an article in there from a joint article between Dublinia um, and the University of Stravanger in, in Norway about Irish objects found in Norway. So it works the other way as well that, you know, the Irish moved moved around, as, as Ruth was saying, you know, uh, saints and scholars, maybe not always so scholarly or so saintly, you know, some of them, like we have uh, instances in the earlier medieval period of English religious leaders warning people about Irish merchants who were prone to stealing people from uh, uh, from ports because there was, there was a, a slave trade. Um, and we see then when the uh, English invasion happened, uh, Heraldus Cambrensis, Gerald of Wales, one of his, um, as always, very interesting uh, comments on the whole period was that it kind of served us right for being invaded because of our previous instances of stealing English people. This was kind of divine, uh, divine retribution. But yeah, I think it's just the fact that Irish people are 
genuinely really, really interested in actually trying to delve down into kind of who we are and into our past. And also the fact that we have a lot of resources which have been kind of untapped. Um, And we'll see with the current project beyond 2022, the virtual treasury, that a lot of resources which we thought were gone and which we thought in the the public record office in the far end during the the Civil War, that we thought those resources were gone. And now suddenly there's a whole world of material becoming available again. Um, I mean, there's a whole other discussion as to why a lot of Irish material isn't in Ireland, but that we can we can talk about that another time or why there's a lot of Irish archaeology, which is in other museums. But that's, you know, that's a whole wider discussion about colonialism and all of that. But um, yeah, I think it's just an innate curiosity. Um, and we like to discuss and disagree about things. You know, you can bring up any historical topic or, you know, any archaeological topic and and you'll find two divergent opinions and we like to discuss and debate it. And Grace, the brilliant collection of essays that inspired tonight's show, Medieval Dublin uh, 19. And, you know, we love having uh, the contributors on when a new volume comes out. Uh, uh, the editor, Professor Sean Duffy, is away. But, uh, uh, you know, he's the chair of the Friends of Medieval Dublin and has a lovely uh, preface to the volume. And uh, tell us about the Friends of Medieval Dublin and the work maybe it does and uh, the importance of bringing together scholars to, to discuss these elements of Medieval Dublin. Well, the Friends of Medieval Dublin was originally founded as a very small study group, really in response to what was happening in Woodkey um, and to the excavations and the res- the response of um, Dublin City Council at the time. Um, over time, obviously, when you know the the Woodkey episode uh, ended, the I suppose the remit of the Friends of Medieval Dublin changed. Um, every year, there is a symposium where Sean will bring together archaeologists and historians. Um, And it's a wonderful, wonderful example of how even with medieval history and archaeology, every year there's brand new archaeology, you know, to be talked about. There's brand new historical topics um, based on on documentary evidence. Um, And the idea, I suppose, is to showcase this to the public. Um, I mean, one of the things Paul can talk about this better than me, but just around the corner from us, what a lot of people call the medieval little um, like I teach American students and so often at the start of each semester, they'll say, do you know about the medieval little? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've heard about the medieval little. Um, but it shows, you know, when I mean, it's such a perfect example of how to engage the public um, and how you can preserve something, but still have have a workaround, you know, that you still have a functioning shop, but you can bring people in and, and see, you know, Viking and medieval material. So I think the the medieval Dublin series, I mean, in this particular volume, you have everything from, you know, say Ruth's very exciting article, but you have, say, even on, on Thomas Street, where the hospital is that, that I wrote about, you've three different articles from just one particular street. And somewhere like Thomas Street, I think for a lot of people... You can walk down Thomas Street for a lot of tourists. It's the thoroughfare to the Guinness factory and you stroll down Thomas Street and you don't think anything of it. And here in one volume in one year, we have three articles talking about what was happening on Thomas Street. And I think there's an opportunity perhaps for us to to try and bring that more to the surface and to allow people to kind of appreciate when they're walking these streets the, the the breadth of history and archaeology that's that's there. And Ruth, tell us about the symposium taking place in October in the Trinity Long Room Hub because it's an all day event. It's free, and you know it's a bringing together of all uh, these scholars to chat, give papers, to exchange ideas and information. Ah, uh, look, it's it's the highlight of the year, really for, for me. Anyway, I'm a friend of medieval Dublin for a long time. Um, study medieval history in Trinity and Dublin City Council subvents the, the the book, the annual proceedings of of the symposium. But the symposium is an opportunity to share an interpretation of the data that is being recovered in the excavations that are happening behind hoardings on commercial development sites around the city. So it's really it's really the first chance to to take freshly harvested data and debate the interpretation of the excavator where you know where, where we're dealing with archaeological subjects um, but also it's an opportunity for early career researchers in 
medieval studies of different types and archaeology, medieval history and so on and so forth and other uh, related disciplines to come into a room of friends and, and to talk through their ideas, through their material and get really good feedback from really experienced people with lots and lots of different um, skill sets. And one of the biggest lecture halls in Trinity College will be absolutely filled to the brim for the whole day. Now, people can come in and go free of charge. You don't have to spend the whole day there. You might just want to come in, hear one paper or one session, or you might want to sit and watch the whole thing or participate in the whole thing. And it is a participatory process. But it's just such a, a fantastic opportunity. And then to translate then those findings within a couple of years, having those translated into um, a book that people can pick up and read and bring forward then in their own research and interpretation. But it's not just specialists that attend that symposium. There's a lot of interested members of the public in Dublin. One of Dublin's special things about the place is that there is this genuine love of history and culture and archaeology with the citizens. And they are very well-informed people. They are readers, they are thinkers, they are sleuths and investigators, and they're part of the audience and part of the debate and discussion. So that's what makes it so special. And listening to you, Ruth, and listening to our other panellists, it's clear that it's important for you all to share this knowledge, that it's important that the, this work isn't just going on, findings aren't being made, but that people are aware more widely of what's happening. If I can there, from an excavator's point of view, it's an amazing outlet to actually showcase these findings. And otherwise, a lot of the time, the excavation is carried out, there's time pressures on the site, there's time pressures on reporting and the rest of it, and it, the reports get done and lodged under planning conditions. But um, through the, the symposium, you really have an opportunity to, as Ruth said, basically show people what's happening behind the hoardings, you know, and reports that otherwise might end up in, in an archive somewhere. So last year, for example, yeah, we had an absolutely packed out auditorium in Trinity College, just within the shadow of the Book of Kells and you're within the historic core of, of the city. But as Ruth was saying, you, you get to share the findings with colleagues, first of all, but it is very much a public facing event. And this year we're having a symposium on the 7th of October as part of the Dublin Festival of History. And it's also coming into the busy season for the Friends now as we walking tours um, around Dublin hosted by Friends of Medieval Dublin. And we'll also be doing tours of the Medieval Little. Um, yeah, tell us about this Medieval Little. <laughs> what exactly is it? So during the course of a, of a large development just across the road from us here on Andrew Street back in 2018, 2019, there was a very large archaeological excavation undertaken over the course of a, of a year. And prior to starting the works, we were aware of certain medieval uh, elements that would be on site. So we were expecting that we might find some elements of the, the lost parish church of St. Peter, St. Peter's on the Hill, which we knew was somewhere in the area. We have it on old maps. We have records of it going back to the 12th century. And parts of the graveyard of that um, church had been found previously in previous developments uh, on Andrew Street. And we also expected to find part of a large curving ditch. So for anybody who knows Stephen Street, Longford Street, you'll notice there's a very significant curve as you're walking along uh, the back of Dublin Castle. And for decades now, the curving nature of that street and the larger kind of area that it encloses, which goes from more or less where we're sitting right to back to Camden Street, it's been thought or it's been proposed to have been an early ecclesiastical enclosure, kind of bringing us back to this island of saints and scholars period, even pre-Viking. Possibly um, pre-Viking Dublin was the, the thinking. So we were expecting to find that ditch and... Um, part of the graveyard as well of St. Peter's Church and Ruth was very instrumental I have to say in, in the whole process and there was a lot of advance work done by Ruth and her team to ensure that the archaeology was very well served and that uh, there were certain conditions in place for the preservation in situ and display of any of these church ruins that might be discovered. That's what my paper in the volume covers, it's the, the excavation, the archaeological uh, interpretation, all the results of what was found on the site. And we did find the church. We found St. Peter's Parish Church. We found a part of the graveyard and we found part of the ditch. And I think in the volume, I've sort of presented the argument that the ditch itself isn't part of this pre-Viking Dublin. We think that's probably a bit further down Ship Street. But that the church itself 
is one of the earliest church foundations in, in Dublin. And we'll dig a little bit more into this. But Ruth, what was fascinating about the medieval little uh, was that people came from around the world that came to Dublin because they wanted to see it and there were people making TikToks of it and everything. Oh yeah, well it's a TikTok sensation I believe. So what 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 Paul and his team did in dialogue with Dublin City Council and various other institutions was they found a Viking house that dates to, I think it's, it's a 12th century house and it's made of stone and it's sort of a sunken structure and we weren't expecting to find that. We were expecting to find the church but we weren't expecting to find this Viking house. So we had agreed that um, the church would be preserved and presented in situ and any remains of the theatre that was a later theatre in uh, 18th century theatre would be preserved and presented and that was all being discussed um, how that could be achieved within the context of the floor plate of the development which is student housing with a little. It became apparent that actually the best presentable feature on the site and possibly the earliest and most interesting feature on the site was this Viking house. So um, it became Paul's mission to to make that happen and did a great job. And there's interpretation in the in the supermarket that you can see, but you can actually walk on this glazing that they installed and you can see the Viking house. Okay, well, we're having good fun tonight exploring and excavating medieval Dublin. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be chatting about some of these people in some of the friars in the the, the hospital and some sexual impropriety. And we're also going to find out about the Norse version of Tristan and Isolde and how some of these traders and how some of the Irish elements appear in it. That's all coming up right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we explore and excavate medieval Dublin. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Ruth Johnson, Dublin City archaeologist, Paul Duffy, an archaeologist, historian and author, Dr Grace O'Keefe, the editor of Archaeology Ireland, and Dr Catherine Swift of Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Catherine, can we talk about your own article? Because it is fascinating about uh, these Norwegian traders and skinners, because what I really was fascinated by was the fact that uh, you find these these traders appearing in sagas, uh, Norwegian sagas, for example, the Norse version of Tristan and Isolde, uh, you have references to it. So it's interesting the way you have so much evidence from outside of this island. I mean, the Tristan and Isolde material, I find absolutely fascinating. It's a translation. When you start looking for the, I mean, Tristan and Isolde is a well-known story and we have Isolde's Tower. I mean, that was part of what, what started me off on this. Um, the excavations there around Dublin. But, but the, the, the earliest version of Tristan and Isolde is difficult to pin down. And one of the earliest, in fact, is an old Norse uh, account, which is done at the court of King Hakon of Norway, possibly around Bergen. Um, and uh, in that, in that whole version of Tristan and Isolde, Ireland plays a much, a rather bigger role than it normally plays. Isolde is normally seen as an Irish princess. But in this version, it gives a long description, or a fairly lengthy description, of Tristan arriving into Dublin, coming up to the castle, um, the dead man being brought down on a pier. And then there's this wonderful description of, at one point, they disguise themselves as merchants and they arrive in and they stop the boat at the edge. And then they come in um, to ask permission to bring the boat further in. And it all sounds terribly like what you can read in Howard Clark about that port being around the area of the Longsdane, and then the, the, the more sheltered port being around the Blackpool. So that was, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to go on an Erasmus trip to, um, to Denmark. The people there helped me to find this material and to read it. And, and it, it, it was an unknown, I didn't know anything about it. I, I found it really exciting. And you also see uh, references to the fur trade uh, in the Arthurian legends as well, because it really, again, shows how, how international this industry was. Yeah, that, that's a description from uh, Christian of Troyes, and it's a description of a coronation at, 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 in, in the Breton city of Nantes. And People have written, certainly French historians have written, that maybe this is a realistic description of, it's meant to be about King Arthur, but it may be a realistic description of the coronation of Henry II's son, um, where he married off his one of his sons, uh, Geoffrey, to uh, the previous duke's daughter at the age of, who was only five at the time. But it was a very grand affair, and they talk a lot about the way in which the king, King Arthur, ostensibly, offers 
uh, the knights' cloaks and and furs and their good furs, their Scandinavian furs. They're not your average squirrel or pine marten or, or, or whatever. And then it talks about all the people attending the ceremony. And it, this is text which is written in the 1170s. So the, the Normans have only just arrived. But the, 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 there's reference to the Irish and, and the Scots and the Welsh all attending at this court. It's also interesting to see how much you can learn from the walrus and uh, the DNA of these walrus remains because I'm used to reading about uh, looking at uh, ancient or medieval uh, or early modern uh, human DNA and, and, and trying to get some evidence from that. But uh, to do it from the walrus, what can you discover? Well, the, the uh, ancient DNA is, is, is a bit controversial um, it's becoming less controversial now over time, but it, it started off being quite controversial about the degree of contamination. Um, that you might be, what you might be picking up in the lab is sort of not the original DNA of the original skeleton, but as it were, floating fragments of, of, of the excavator or the soil in which it was placed, it was found, etc., etc. Um, so for a while, people people think they've solved all those problems now through mathematical modelling. But for a while, then, DNA people started saying, well, if we can't be really sure about ancient humans, at least if we study ancient rats or ancient badgers or ancient cows or whatever, we can be sure that we're not picking up, you know, the the scientists' DNA uh, or or any contamination. There was a project. There's a guy called Jamins Barrett in Cambridge, and he's done a lot on... Um, fisheries and, and marine archaeology in general in the Viking period. And he was involved in this big project about looking at uh, walrus ivory um, and where the walrus came from, because ivory starts becoming a material which is used a lot in particularly high-status objects in the 11th, 12th, 13th century. We, there's the crozier head, for example, from Kerry, which is in, in walrus ivory. So people were interested in where did these walruses come from. And so they did DNA studies of it, and they discovered that, uh, and, and, and Ireland, because of the wood key excavations, had provided four different samples for the, for the study. They were looking at walrus ivory as it was found in various archaeological excavations around Western Europe. And essentially, they found there's two groups of walruses, uh, one in the North Atlantic around Greenland, and one in the Arctic um, around the Barents Sea. And the Dublin walrus was 50-50. It was, half of it came for, from Greenland and half of it came from the Barents Sea of the four samples. So that, that was really interesting. And, and, and it does, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean we have sailors sailing out from Dublin and, and going up to the Arctic with their icebreakers. But it, it, it does mean that at some point, whether through direct contact or more likely through a peddler type contact, that the, the, the ivory comes from Russia and goes to Scandinavia and from Scandinavia it goes to London and from London it comes to Dublin um, we are actually in contact with Russian fur traders and, 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 and Russian ivory traders And some of the, uh, when you look at the, the use of language, some of the loan words uh, were then uh, translated into Irish so uh, the fact that you see this kind of cross-pollination of, 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 of particular words, vocabulary that kind of shows how the, the cultures and the societies are interacting as well. Yeah, well the, the, I, and that's that's where things like um, the French Medieval Dublin Symposium is such, is such an excellent area for debate because um, there's an Irish word, scheme, S-C-I-N-G. And in the dictionaries and uh, the people who looked at it in the last generation, people like Miles Dillon, they just translated it as hide or leather. And thinking about colonial Ireland, uh, both modern colonial Ireland in terms of our colonial attitudes to time periods, etc., or the Viking colony, diaspora, whatever you want to call it, and the Anglo-Norman diaspora, uh, it doesn't make sense that Irish would have to have a loan word for, for leather. We produce a lot of leather. So when you delve into it, it's much more likely that skin is the word for fur. And it, it, it reflects a, a, an importation of the white Arctic fox furs, the ermines, etc., that are coming in. And there's lovely uh, references down here in the West. There's one from Kerry, for example, from Inishtalan, where they refer to the, the, the nobles of the area 
and, and their skin, along with their gold and silver. So we can imagine them uh, <laughs> in a wet, miserable summer. <laughs> Where would we have seen such a thing? Um, curled up, the, the elite of Ireland, curled up and, and stroking their soft, white Scandinavian furs in the period of 100, 150 years before the Normans ever arrive. Only the elite, of course. No, <laughs> extraordinary. Now, Grace, you have a fascinating article on the many priors of St. John's Hospital in Dublin, but you have the great heading for the article, <laughs> which is, uh, to quote, suitable men of good repute and a public fornicator. And it's that second part that really caught <laughs> me because, because uh, it wasn't just one. It seemed there were quite a few priors who had accusations of sexual impropriety against them and there were various scandals and reports and it definitely seemed to attract uh, all kinds of people. Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, for anybody who's writing a, a dry historical article, throw in a bit of, of sexual impropriety and that's how you get the, the readers in, definitely. So the priors were a very important position. They were the head of the hospital itself was quite a big institution. Um, and one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to write specifically about the priors, so this was part of, of the research for my PhD. One of the reasons that I wanted to write about the priors was that when we think of trying to understand how a medieval city was run, you think obviously, particularly say a colonial city like Dublin, we look to the politics, you look to the crown, you look to legislation like that. But there were a lot of very big religious institutions in Dublin and the heads of those institutions were very much involved in the politics of the city and in, the, say, in a city like Dublin, involved in the politics of um, the colony and in royal affairs as well. So to understand those politics, you must understand about the priors. And there are still many um, heads of these institutions which haven't been written about. So anybody who wants to delve into St. Thomas's, into St. Mary's, you know, there's a huge amount of work still to be done. So I wrote about my priors, my hospital, as, as I like to call it. And initially they start off pretty well. So the first one is an interesting character in himself, um, Aylward Palmer. Uh, we don't know that much about him. Kathy herself has written about and in a um, book which Paul has edited about the Crusaders, about this idea of Palmers and Palmers, then the the surname, if we loosely term it that way, um, Palmer appearing in the Dublin Guild merchant role. And were they Palmers? The idea of a Palmer is that you've been to Jerusalem, you've taken the palm, you've gone on pilgrimage. Um, Aylred, I don't know, was he, you know, did he go on pilgrimage? He certainly appears in the witness lists of many deeds in Dublin with quite a lot of very important people. So he was well integrated in society. The name Aylred, is it Anglo-Saxon? Is it, uh, is it Scandinavian? We're not really sure. But Aylred seems like a pretty, a pretty decent kind of guy. Himself and his wife set up this hospital, which is a great thing to do. It's very typical of its time. It's set in the just outside the walls of the city. The idea is that it's for the sick and the poor. When we say hospital, think of that in a very, very loose term. Um, it's really a place which probably provided a bed and food for people who've fallen on, on hard times. It did have a garden. So definitely, I would definitely say that it provided some kind of medicinal help, probably in the more herbal end of things rather than the, the surgical end of things. But then you start getting into the 14th century and the 15th century and the picture changes a little bit. And it changes for a few reasons. Um, in the 12th and 13th century, these big types of religious houses like St. John's, like St. Thomas's, like St. Mary's were very, very popular. It was a very popular, um, very they were very popular places to give donations to. Um, for lots of reasons, um, it kind of cemented your position in society a bit, that, you know, that you're associated with this big institution. There was also the fact that you would, in your donation, you would say, I would like the poor and the sick to pray for my family and all of my dead relatives and, and all of my, you know, future um, descendants. Um, but when we get into the 14th, 15th century, the parish church begins to make a bigger appearance 
So you think of, say, where St. John's is just on Thomas Street, where the Church of St. Augustine and St. John is today for across from Vicar Street from people who might know Thomas Street that well. But you also have then places like St. Odin's, you have St. Werberg's. These parish churches begin to become more important and people start to direct their money more towards the parish church because they have a little bit more influence over it themselves and the running of the church. So now things in these big institutions tend to go a little bit awry. So you start finding mentions of of the heads of these institutions as perhaps having less altruistic uh, notions about running the institution. And you start, particularly, say, with St. John's, the two priors um, who are noted as being public fornicators or known fornicators and having beget children. Yes, which seems to be an element of corruption as well because they're accused of allowing the, the place to be dilapidated and run down. So there seems to be an implication that maybe because the money is being spent on themselves and, and other things. The money is being directed elsewhere, possibly to their, their children. Um, and you get instances where, well, I mean, one of them, James Coitiff, he is noted as being um, a fornicator. But when you look into it, the, the accusations don't kind of come out of nowhere. The accusations are part of disputes with either people who were previous priors or who later become priors or who are, if you kind of stand back a little bit and start to look at the political associations of the priors. So, for instance, James Coitive would have been associated with the butlers, the Earl of, of Ormond. So when you stand back, you say, OK, so... The person accusing them is possibly associated with the Talbots and the Talbots and the Butlers have a long, long running dispute. So, you know, you can't necessarily take it on on the surface level. Yeah, there's level. smearing and there's <laughs> Absolutely. political now, intrigue. Now, ha- having, having said that, um, one of the others, Richard Hedian, who um, was also accused of, of having many children and, and siphoning money off for, for these uh, children, he was part of a wider, um, a, a phrase which might seem unusual, an ecclesiastical dynasty. Um, and that essentially means that his family were, they had many branches of, of, of ecclesiastics, but these ecclesiastics were having children. And those children were then also getting these religious titles, um, which, you know, uh, meant that they had the rights to tithes that were being paid and they would, you know, set themselves up nicely for for the future. Um, So it, uh, you know, were they fornicators? If you have an ecclesiastical dynasty, it's a bit harder to say, no, they weren't, if you know that they're having many children. Um, But you can't rule out that they were scurrilous political smears at the same time. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) And, you know, Paul, going to your article then on, you know, the excavations and the investigations into uh, St. Peter's Church and, and finding out the original Blackpool, you know, it's it doesn't have the sexual intrigue or the corruption, <laughs> but it does have interesting debates, though, doesn't it? Because there is a certain kind of detective work. Uh, uh, it's almost like a detective story reading the piece because it's it's uncovering bits of evidence and uh, trying to piece together uh, different parts of the story and trying to to see what it all means. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for the sexy story, you go into Little and you can see the uh, <laughs> you know the condensed um, version of the results. You know interpreting the, the Viking house and the church and the rest. What's in the book is, is how we arrived at those conclusions through all the, the different information from the excavation on the ground and then the, the huge amount of specialist work that's done afterwards with all the finds and the samples and the um, environmental um, remains, etc. But yeah, it definitely it was very challenging to unpick what we found over there because it's not like we just opened up the ground and we had a medieval church sitting there waiting for us, you know. There'd been centuries of development on the site all the way through, you know. So what we ultimately found was evidence for a very early church going into the the 11th century. So we found a huge lime kiln that was used to build one of the earliest churches in Dublin. And interestingly, tying in with what Grace has just been saying, it wasn't until the 14th century, so the end of the 1300s, that we see the church being rebuilt much more substantially. And this is, it's a parish church, so it feeds into what Grace is saying, much more interest in the, the parish structure at that time. Not only that, but we see the graveyard expanding hugely as well. 
And the graveyard expands so much that it starts to swallow what we believe was the previous Viking and Highburner North suburb, where we get the sunken, the sunken house you can see in Little. Um, so all of these, these changes over time are visible and then the whole thing is, is kind of cut through and chopped up by cellars that are, that are built in the 17th century. So it's a lot of unpicking to do. But it's not only the glass floor that you can see in Little uh, and the shop floor, where you can see very clearly the, the, the Viking house laid out. But in this, the, the back of house, in the storeroom and the loading bay of Little, the church is still there beneath the ground. So it's covered over with metal doors, but at certain times during the year, these are opened up for display to the public. And, and like there are some beautiful photographs in the book Medieval Dublin 19 that uh, accompany your article where you see some of the burials and you see kind of the skeletons and the bones and you see what care was taken in the 14th century mm. but also the care that uh, you've all taken in the excavations that it's really painstaking work, isn't it? Uh, with cemeteries, um, absolutely, yeah. Uh, more so than most other kind of site you'll, you'll excavate because you have that um, obviously that ethical concern for the individual and also the, 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 the delicate nature of what you're digging as well and some of the photographs you're referencing you can see that the, much the same as the cellars are cutting into earlier buildings burials if you have a burial uh, ground that's been used for several hundred years you're going to have burials cutting into earlier burials um, and stacked burials and everything like that so Jenny Coughlin has, has a paper in the, the volume as well, which details the, the individuals that we excavated. There was over 200 uh, individuals excavated from, uh, from the graveyard dating from the 13th through to the, the 17th century. Okay, well, it is fascinating stuff and it is all part of that rich medieval heritage that we have in this country. We're going to take another quick break, our final break now. And when we come back, we'll be finding out what you can learn from an incised slate from the coombe in Dublin and lots more besides. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we continue our discussion of medieval Dublin. And I'm rejoined by my brilliant panel, Dr. Ruth Johnson, Paul Duffy, Dr. Grace O'Keefe and Dr. Catherine Swift. Ruth, can you tell us about your own work here? Because uh, it's fascinating how a slate that was discovered ended up opening up all of these new avenues for investigation. And again, it really was like a detective story, how, you know, one small fragmentary piece of evidence suddenly became so significant. Yeah, um, well, I had the privilege of working on this uh, really exciting little find that came from an excavation on the coombe in advance of the construction of the Hyatt Centric Hotel there. That was the second excavation on the coombe. Um, Previously in 2008, another archaeologist, Claire Walsh of Archaeological Projects Limited, had excavated along the coombe, um, the adjacent site. And between those two excavations, they uncovered um, a row of probably eight, maybe a little bit more, plots with um, Hiberna Norse type post and wattle houses of the type that you would expect to find at Wood Quay in the Viking Age. Um, and so really telling us that we had a suburb here, a pre-Norman suburb. In the rear garden of one of these Hiberna Norse type one houses, um, there was a little outhouse and a stone path. And one of the excavators, when he was he was digging, he found a, a piece of stone and he turned it over and had a look at it, as archaeologists do. And he noticed some scratching on it. And so he took it into the finds hut and um, they started to uh, clean it and photograph it and realised that there were actually drawings on this on this object, on this piece of stone. So I got a call. I was actually at the flu, but I got a call and I met them in Fallon's pub, which is on the corner. And uh, we sat and had a look at this with our torches and tried to read the stone effectively. Um, so it's it's got um, scratches on both sides. It's sort of graffiti type images on both sides. So on one side in the centre there's what looks like a warrior on horseback and on and some letters and on the other side there is um, like an ABC, unfinished ABC lettering and another kind of animal or quadruped. So that sort of set me off embarking on research to see who um, this 
are what these images might just be, these pictographs on this stone, and, and whether it, we could identify who the subject matter is, the mounted warrior. And various theories. It could be a Norse god or an Irish noble or a Norman knight or a crusader or a saint. That What's incredible is that you, know, you can have all of these different uh, theories about it. Yeah, well, I suppose what was challenging about this object was that it is, it's very naive and a very naive piece of art, I suppose. So it's not kind of fine art, art for art's sake. Um, so obviously that is a challenge first and foremost, but the date of the site and the context of the find um, made it um, difficult to know where to start looking for um, art historical parallels, because I suppose you would expect on a Hiberno North Street to have um, insular and Scandinavian parallels for the artwork. Um, so I started off really looking at insular and Scandinavian parallels. And of course, the, the animal with the rider on one side is has a bit of a wolfy look about it. It's got like pointy teeth and big ears and, and it looks a bit wolfy. So And also there's two birds um, associated with that figure and that composition. And of course, in Scandinavian myths and legends, the god Odin was accompanied by two ravens, Hugin and Munin, um, thought and memory, who travelled around the world and they brought him back stories about what was going on. Um, and Odin, but Odin famously only had one eye, whereas our figure has two eyes and obviously it would be really exciting if this was a wolf and this was a depiction of Odin and Fenrir the wolf on Ragnarok having a battle at the end of the world and that the animal, the birds were hugging and running. But you have to question these ideas just because it seems to fit, you know, you have to really look carefully at every bit of evidence. So I started to look at things like the, the way the, the face was drawn it wasn't very typical of Viking art and it wasn't very typical of insular art, like that's the art of the Irish sea area in the early medieval period. Um, and then when you look at the sword and the shield that he's carrying, the shield is a little triangular shaped shield and it's got like little squiggles on it that look like heraldic devices. A Viking shield would be round. The sword could fit in either milieu Scandinavian or European, um, I suppose Norman of the period. It's, it's not very diagnostic. So lots and lots and lots of questions in my mind about this. So I started looking at things like the Bayer Tapestry from 1075 that um, for, for European parallels. I looked at um, Irish high crosses. I looked at Scandinavian um, stone carving. I looked at manuscript art. I looked at the art of the graffiti in uh, European churches. Um, and I finally came to settle on the composition being most comparable to the seal matrices that were used by the aristocracy in uh, the Anglo-Norman aristocracy um, and the Normans um, in the medieval period. And these seals were used as kind of authenticate documents and they were quite um, formulaic in their the way that they were depicting equestrian subjects, warriors. So that's one possibility. So that's the art. And what was really special about this piece, though, is that it's a combination of art and lettering. So whoever made this object was living in a secular milieu on um, a suburban street round about the cusp of the Anglo-Norman invasion. So probably had Scandinavian, Irish and Norman influences um, and ethnicity, mixed ethnicity possibly. But they were also educated and they were doing the ABCs. And the ABCs are a little bit of a mixed bag because you've got lowercase letters but you've also got some capital letters and you've got some kind of interesting letter forms the the, the f in particular is a distinctive skeletal form and the g is a particular kind of figure of eight form and the calligraphy really is norman it's not it's not irish it's not gaelic so that's kind of pointing us a little bit away from the hiberna norse theories and of course like in the Hiberna Norse artistic idiom, you don't really get 
depictions of mythological warriors at this late date, which is the late 12th, mid to late 12th century. So really then the question was, um, so if this is a, a medieval object, a sort of Norman influenced object by an educated scholar or playful person, but who was doing the ABCs in that suburb of Dublin, um, you know, what was the object? Was it a motif piece? Was it just a, a piece of graffiti? Or was it something a little bit more than that? So I started to look at writing tablets and to learn a little bit about that. We need to do further analysis of the stone and also of the pigment on the front. Um, so there's a lot more to be sort of learned about this. There's lots of other scratches as well on the slate that, you know, potentially could indicate that it was used and reused as a gaming piece, as a, a board game or something like that. So, um, But what, what it does, probably my view is that it was probably some kind of a scholar's slate um, and that the person who was using this may have had some connections to St. Patrick's Church. Um, and of course, uh, the cathedral was founded in 1192 by uh, John Cumin. So there was some kind of there was this kind of parish as well in that period and that they were learning their abcs in a secular environment but with all of these different influences on their lives no well it's a brilliant story and again one of the excellent articles in medieval dublin 19 published by four courts press edited by sean duffy and grace i'm going to leave the final word to you because the question that i always ask sean when we have him on is uh you know what's next can there be another volume sean always says you know there's there, there is more because there is the symposium every year there is the exciting work and it's extraordinary that every year more and more is being uncovered more new research is being generated that there's much more of the story that has to be told uh, Patrick it's not going to surprise you if I say of course there's going to be another volume um, I think from even just the discussion that we've had here today I think each of us could talk for probably another hour <laughs> about both our own research and about Medieval Dublin um, the other thing to mention about Medieval Dublin 19 um, to finish is that even though it's on Medieval Dublin um, there's a brilliant article um, by Joe and Renee about the discovery of in, in recent times about the um, skulls in St. John's Hospital, which were found in the School of Anatomy um, in Trinity. And there's a brilliant, brilliant detective story about how they discovered the origins of the skulls and dating them. Um, and also for anyone who feels uh, that this is a very Dublin centric uh, discussion, um, Bruce Campbell has a brilliant article looking at um, assessing kind of Dublin as a capital was Dublin really the capital of of uh, medieval Ireland and I think for anyone particularly maybe from a particular city down in Munster um, they might feel that questioning Dublin as the real capital will be an article that they should definitely uh, they should definitely follow up but yeah you're going to see many many more medieval Dublin volumes because we, we can we can talk and dig for a long time more Brilliant. And you're on first name terms with Joe and Rene, but for the rest of us, Joseph Harbison and Rene Gapper, yeah, yeah. And, a, and a brilliant piece that they have there on, on what's been discovered uh, in that pre-Anglo-Norman uh, cemetery and uh, a brilliant piece on, on Thomas Street and what's found on the shelves of Trinity College Dublin. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the medieval past to life tonight. Dr. Ruth Johnson, Dublin City archaeologist, Paul Duffy, archaeologist, historian and author, Dr. Grace O'Keefe, the editor of Archaeology. Ireland and Dr Catherine Swift of Mary Macklet College in Limerick. Well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>